If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 10 through 16. It'll be on the screen here as well. And so, well, actually, we're going to start in verse 9 because uh, we kind of overlap a little bit because verse 9 really sets the context uh, for the rest of the chapter. And um, so, yeah, so uh, as we said, Paul writes this letter to Titus and says, you know, he left him in Crete to appoint elders to set things in order in the church and the different cities there. And then so one of the things that Paul says is that an elder must be um, hold firmly to the, the faithful word so that they can both teach people, exhort people in sound doctrine or sound teaching, as well as refute those who contradict. That's what we see in verse 9. So I'm just going to uh, read the whole passage and, and pray, and then we'll get into the studying the rest of this passage together this morning. So Paul writes to Titus, he, referring to the elder, uh, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your word that you spoke through the Apostle Paul to Titus and to the church uh, many, many years ago. And we thank you that that word has come to us uh, for our instruction as well. And we pray that as we um, study this passage together and meditate on it, uh, not just now, Lord, but um, throughout the rest of the week, that you would... um, Use it, Lord, to, to build us up, Lord, that you would help us to be um, people who are grounded in your word, people who are discerning, uh, and that you would um, help us, Lord, to be, able, who, be people who are able to uh, teach others what is right and true, what you have revealed, what your word says, and also to be able to correct uh, those who uh, contradict your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in verse 10, Paul explains basically one of the main reasons that the elders Titus appoints must be faithful and sound in doctrine and and be able to teach it uh, to those who are learning it and and also to be able to refute uh, those who contradicts it. Um, And he says that, he he says this is because there are many who are insubordinate, right, Uh, empty talkers and deceivers. Paul warns Timothy of basically the same thing in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 
which is a helpful cross-reference to this passage. And in that, sec- in that portion of Scripture, he says that these false teachers, they devote themselves to endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God's work, of God's work which is by faith. And we're going to see that over and over, um, I think, throughout this, as we're studying this passage, the work of God is by faith. Um, so there are two things, I think, to notice, at least in verse 10, that I'd like for us to notice. First is uh, the number of false teachers, and then second, the three qualities of the false teachers. Insubordinate, right? Uh, empty talkers and deceivers. But first, just the number, he says there are many, right? Paul says that there are many, not a few. And so Paul recognizes that this is not a small threat to the church, but actually a very large one. Even in the first few years, the first few decades of the of the Christian church, there were a lot of false teachers. In Paul's day, uh, just as in ours, in our, our place and time, if you were someone who wanted to learn about Christianity the, for the first time, you actually might have a better chance of coming across a false teaching or a misrepresentation of Christianity than a true one. And I would say that's certainly true in our day. That I've heard this say that, you know, uh, uh, um, in America, a Christian bookstore could be a dangerous place to be, actually. Uh, and not, not that there aren't, um, you know, true teachings and, and people who, who write books that teach things that are true, but there are also a lot of false doctrines, a lot of uh, false teachings. Uh, and so, let's say, I just, you know, I thought about this just in our con- context here in this country. If you or I were someone who had just heard about Jesus for the first time, and you wanted to learn more, and let's say you just did a Google search uh, for the most popular Christian teachers, what would it come up with? Well, here are some of the names. Joel Osteen, uh, a proponent of the prosperity gospel. He you know, teaches that God loves everyone, wants everyone to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. He's, at, he's, he's said that he's, you know, he's been recorded as saying he can't say that Jesus is the only way to God. Uh, you, would, you would come up with names like uh, Joyce Meyer, who's another prosperity teacher, uh, teaches some different false doctrines. Uh, it says that Jesus was the first born again man. You come across names like T.D. Jakes, who teaches what's called uh, the modalism heresy, which is a, 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 trini- a heresy concerning the Trinity, a misinterpretation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, you would come across a name like uh, Thomas Spencer Moon, who is the president of uh, the Latter Day Saints, uh, the, you know the uh, the Mormon cult. And so there, it's not that there are a few false teachers out there. There are actually many false teachers out there. And so Paul tells Titus that these false teachers must be silenced um, because they will upset the faith of others. So there's not a few of them, there's many of them, and then he gives some characteristics. What are the characteristics of a false teacher? So Paul lists three, insubordinate, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, and deceivers. So what does it mean to be insubordinate? Well, to be insubordinate means to be uh, rebellious or out of line, not compliant with something, right? That's the definition of the word insubordinate. But then we have to ask, okay, well then, you know, who are they being insubordinate to? Who are they free, refusing to submit to? Well, obviously they're refusing to submit to God. And we know that because Paul even says it at the end of the passage. He, sa- he calls them disobedient. He says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Um, and they're disobedient either because they refuse to do uh, 
to do and teach what God has revealed in his word, which is the Bible, the scriptures, or they, uh, they refuse to do it, or they refuse to stop doing what his word explicitly forbids, or stop teaching things that are not revealed in scripture, or that are even contradicted by scripture. And I was thinking about, what, you know, what are the different ways that we could be insubordinate? And I think there's a couple different levels, a couple different ways that we can be insubordinate. One is that we could just be insubordinate in our theology, what we believe about God. So we, you know, we can just simply refuse to believe what God has clearly re- revealed about himself and about us. And so that could be anything from a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity or denying the divinity of Christ, that Jesus was truly God and truly man at the same time. Um, or, or, but it could also be just denying the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, the justice of God, which is very popular in all, our culture today. I'd say that's one of the biggest things. Um, the, you know, the people who say that we believe in a God that just loves everyone the way that they are and they, he's not angry at their sin, you know, uh, they deny the existence of hell and things like that. So there are a lot of ways to be insubordinate in your theology. Um, but then, of course, you know, if you're insubordinate to God's word in your theology, then you're naturally, what's going to follow is you're going to be insubordinate in your practice as well. So that's just you know, logically true, but it's also possible, as many of us know, I'm sure in our own lives, as we've wrestled with sin, um, to profess belief in a certain doctrine or in a certain teaching while actually practicing the opposite. Uh, I know that, you know, Romans 13 says I should be subject, subject to the government, but I'm going to exceed the speed limit anyway. As Bodie Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Right. Um, I, I know I should share the gospel with everyone I can, but that's uncomfortable. So I'll just say, you know, it's not really my gift. My, it's not really my gifting. Uh, I know I should give some of my money to God's kingdom and, and support the work of his church, but I like keeping my money. I'd rather, I'd rather keep it. I know I should be a member of a local church, <clears throat> but I'd rather not have to deal with actually committing to all of that, having to open up to other people and actually be accountable to other people and be vulnerable with other people, so I'll just keep visiting churches, which is very popular in our day for a lot of, a lot of Christians, I think. And so in Paul's day, the, the insubordinate men that he's referring to, though, were most likely what were called the Judaizers. Uh, Judaizers were people who, they claimed to be Christians, but, so, but they also tried to mix the message of the gospel of grace, right? We know that we teach here that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But they would teach people that in order to be saved, a person must put their faith in Jesus and be circumcised and abstain from certain foods and keep certain customs, such as observing the, the Sabbath and, uh, and other, other things like that. And so that kind of uh, works-based fa- false religion is widespread today you know, uh, in different, different cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. But and, you know, in each of these groups, they, they teach that you know, the true way of... They, uh, they say that they teach the true way of salvation, but yet they add all of these works to it. Confession, ritual prayers, uh, baptism, the mass, giving to the poor, uh, and, and all of those things. 
And so the cults of, that we have today, just like the Judaizers back then, are insubordinate because their teaching and their lives are out of line with the Word of God. Um, but more than just the cults today, many even evangelical pastors uh, in our day, in our, in our country today, are out of line with the Word of God also. Um, some churches you know, affirm uh, people living in serious, uh, unrepentant sexual sin, um, very few per- churches in our country today pe- pra- actually practice meaningful church discipline. And uh, I think all of this starts with pride, just like, you know, all insubordination, it starts with pride, is just refusing to submit yourself to the Word of God. So Paul calls them insubordinate, and he says they're empty talkers. Um, there, there are a couple different ways a teacher can be an empty talker. The first way is that you have really no substance to your message, right? Perhaps, you know, uh, some, you might tell somebody that, you know, like I said, God just loves you and wants you to be healthy and rich. Might, uh, might tell somebody just believe in Jesus without actually explaining what that means and what it requires and what it actually means to, to become a Christian, or maybe they'll just give you, you know, five better steps to a, a five steps to a better marriage, or how to um, have well-behaved kids, or you know, all of this without telling you and explaining to you what it means to actually be born again, and that you must be born again. Uh, Jesus said, "Without being born again, you can't see the kingdom of God." Um, and but that's so. That's one way to be an empty talker is just to have a message that's not. There's nothing really there. There's not really a, a, a true doctrine there. Um, but then the other way, obviously, is to not practice what you preach. It makes what we say empty. It makes what you, your talk empty because you don't really believe what you say you believe. And so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about what are some, you know, phrases or, or, or things that we might claim that in and of themselves might just be empty talk. And they might, you know, these, these things might surprise you a little bit. One thing that we could that is said, and that could be an empty statement, is uh, I'm a pastor, or I'm an elder. That in itself, is, that statement doesn't really mean much. Uh, you know, anybody could prepare a sermon on Sunday morning, hold the attention of an audience, make some good points. But that's a far cry from being a, a man of God, with the power of God on your life. Um, and we have a lot of pastors and, and elders today who just... Uh, care more about social sensibilities and things like that, and too little about this uh, spiritual health and, and progress of their of their congregation. Um, and so, church leaders who speak and act this way would show themselves to be empty talkers, right? Um, another phrase that is empty in and of itself, again, this might be surprising, is "I'm a Christian." Um, anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, man. I wish I would have brought it. I have a copy of it. I wanted to bring it, and I forgot. But um, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, I was thinking about one of the characters in Pilgrim's Progress. If you, I don't know if you remember, if you've read the book, if you remember this character. His name was Talkative. His name was Talkative. And I think he represents this very well. And I just want to read a little excerpt uh, from Pilgrim's Progress because I think it, it just captures this so well. So there are, there are two, the two main characters are guys named Christian and Faithful. The Pilgrim's Progress, by the way, is a book, classic book written by a man named John Bunyan. He was a pastor who lived a long time ago. Um, and so Christian and Talkative are, are walking along, and they come across this other man named uh, Talkative, and he seems to be a believer. 
He loves, he knows and loves to talk about the things of God, and Faithful is quite impressed with him at first until Christian exposes how empty talkative's talk actually is. Uh, Christian says to, to Faithful, This man with whom you are so taken will deceive 20 men who don't know him well. And Faithful says, You know him then? And Christian answers, Yes, I know him better than he knows himself. His name is Talkative. He is the, one, he is the son of one say well. And notwithstanding his fine tongue, he is a sorry fellow. As he talks with you now, so he will talk when he is on the ale bench. And the more drink he has had in his head, the more of these things he has in his mouth. Religion has no place in his heart or his house or daily routine. All he has is his tongue, and his religion is simply to make noise with it. He talks of prayer, repentance, of faith, and of new birth, but he only knows how to talk of them. Talkative thinks that hearing and saying alone will make a good Christian, and so he deceives his own soul. And then Faithful asks Christian how he should deal with a man, and this is Christian's reply. He says, get into some serious discourse about the power of religion. Ask him plainly whether these things are practiced in his heart, with his family, and in his daily routine. So we may know many things. We may have our theology right in our head and have it never affect our heart and our our daily life. So there's an exhortation here, don't be an empty talker. Realize that your knowledge of, of God and your knowledge of, even your knowledge of Scripture is worthless if it doesn't produce a godly life. Don't, don't just recognize uh, and acknowledge and confess your sin. Make war against it. Don't just talk about prayer. You have to actually pray. You have to practice prayer. Don't just talk about repentance. We need to practice repentance. So Paul calls them empty talkers and deceivers. Um, and I think that it would be good to note the link between I think there's a link between being an empty talker and a deceiver, at least as I was thinking about it. I, I could really see like how one leads to another because empty talk is and of itself deceiving. Empty talk deceives both the teacher and himself as well as those that he teaches. And notice in verse 11, Paul talks about the motivation, their true motivation. They must be silenced since they are upsetting by whole, whole families by teaching for shameful gain. What they, all, what they ought not to teach. And so Paul exposes what the true motivation is. These guys are teaching for money or uh, position or you know, uh, power, things like that. Um, and when you view, these, uh, you, you view a, a false teacher and a, few, uh, a true teacher from a distance, it might be hard to tell the difference, right? Because um, you know, a false pastor's church might grow, even as a true pastor's does, it might grow greatly in, in numbers. And God allows for that, for his own purposes. Um, but if you get close to them, that's when the difference really becomes clear. I have some friends, you know, as you guys know, my friend Chris Jones and I, we do evangelism. Um, actually, the guy who's going to be speaking, uh, we're doing Sanctity of Life Sunday next Sunday, um, and he's going to be speaking on the image of God and about uh, abortion uh, next Sunday. His name is Van White. He's a dear brother of mine and an evangelist. He was in Yorktown uh, passing out some tracts and witnessing. 
and uh, talking to people about Jesus. And they came across a man who was very angry with them for what they were doing. And that man told them that they had no business being there uh, talking to people about these things when all they were there to do was just to have a good time and enjoy themselves. He, he saw their presence and their message as an intrusion and an unwanted annoyance. And then uh, my friend Van asked him, you know, who he was, where he was from. He was a pastor from, from Northern Virginia. So there are many pastors who could actually care less about whether the souls of the people around them are, are headed for heaven or hell, only that they have a pulpit to fill on Sunday and people waiting to hear them each week. That's one of the most dangerous things is a, a, a professional pastor, someone who does it just because, it's because they get paid for it. Uh, so Paul tells them that they must, tells Titus that they must be silenced, these false teachers, because, well, to put it bluntly, false teachers take people to hell. There's just no, uh, you know, it, there's not a nice way to put it. They cut their souls off from the, the one who can save them. And Jesus said this of the Pharisees, he says, you neither enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. And so Paul says that, uh, to Titus, that these people need to be silenced. So that begs the question, how, how, do, how do we silence them? How should they be silenced? And I think the best example of how to do this just comes from our Lord. Uh, I don't think there's a better example of, of it than, than him. And we see, if you just study how he is his dealings with the religi- religious leaders of his day, they would say things. He would, just, he would answer their teachings with the truth. It's always from God's word. He would always answer them from God's word. They would say, you know, you can't pick grain on the Sabbath, Jesus. That's, you know, that's wrong. You can't pick grain on the Sabbath. And then Jesus would answer, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Um, you know, uh, Jesus, our, our teachers say that uh, a man can divorce his wife whenever he wants. And then Jesus replies again from God's word, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh? Or, or the, take the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. You know, Sadducees, we don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus te- tells them, have you not read in the book of Moses when God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus fought against the lies of false teachers with the truth of God's word. That's how we silence false teachers. You silence false teachers by rebuking them, by, uh, by telling the truth, by speaking the truth. And that's how church leaders must fight as well, is with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. I wanted to make sure to say that because uh, everything we do must be bathed in prayer. One of my favorite, um, a friend of mine, a, um, a pastor I used to be under, he used to say, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And that's what we really want, is God to work in people's hearts and minds. Um, and so, the prophet, in verse 12, we go to the next slide. I want to be mindful of time here. I know I'm probably going to go over. apologize in advance. Um, so, the, the prophet, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The, the prophet he's talking about is a guy named uh, Epimenides of Crete. And Paul is actually found to quote him twice in the New Testament. Uh, Once here, and then the other is in Acts 17. And interestingly enough, both of the quotes come from the same poem. 
Uh, it's the Epimenides poem about uh, the Greek god Zeus. And, um, and in the, he uh, addresses the Greek god Zeus and he writes, uh, quote, they, they fashioned a tomb for you, high and holy one. Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, lazy bellies. Uh, but you are not dead. You, are, you live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. And so that's the last part. Uh, that it's, a, it's in Acts 17, that the last part of the poem that qu- Paul quotes in Acts 17. Um, so Paul quotes Epimenides in uh, verse 12, and um, he says that what Epimenides says about the people of Crete is true, right? That they are largely uh, characterized by lying and laziness. And uh, I'm sure the false teachers saw those vices as well. And he says, so Titus should reprove them severely. And he says he should tell those same people not to give their time and attention to uh, Jewish myths or, or to these false teachers because there'll be no use to them um, in becoming holy. And he says, you know, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then we'll get into verse 15 in a minute, but I just want, like, it's kind of, when I was reading this, I feel like this is, it could be a, um, a portion that's a little difficult to interpret, but I, I think what Paul is saying here, like I said, is the, these guys, these false teachers, um, they're not going to be of any help to the people of Crete in helping them overcome their, their sin. I think what Paul is saying here is if they follow these Judaizers, Instead of giving themselves to those sins like laziness, lying, and things like that, um, instead of giving themselves to, you know, sitting on the couch, eating Cheetos, playing video games, and having no religious practice, they'll start giving themselves to false religious practice. They'll start giving themselves to legalism, self-righteousness, false religious practice. And so... The reason that false religion is so dangerous is that it appears to work in a way. I mean, if you just think about this, like I was thinking about it, the the scariest part about false religion is that it can make you think you're headed for heaven while it takes you to hell. Um, You know, so so they'll tell them, you know, keep these dietary laws. Are you, you you know, are you a lazy person, or are you you have a problem with gluttony? Well, then keep these certain dietary laws, and that will help you not be so gluttonous. There there are different ways that they might try to help, but it's all from the outside in rather from the inside out. And and we see this today, even in like professing evangelical churches where. The name of the game is just to keep people interested and keep people involved. Just keep them interested, keep them involved, keep, them do, keep, them, keep it going, keep them active, keep them doing things, keep them, keep them interested, keep them in the habit until, and I think we've seen this until COVID-19 happens, and then people stop attending church in person. And I'm not saying anything against that one way or the other, maybe for good reason, for good health, health and safety reasons, right? But then... They never come back, and my question is why? And it may be because they're not driven from the inside out to attend church by genuine spiritual life within them, but they're propped up by external activities. So that's the essence of false religion. It works from the outside in instead of the inside out. It it props up spiritual corpses with puppet strings rather than animating them with genuine spiritual life. 
right? The genuine believer comes to church uh, to, to learn, to serve, to change, and to, and to grow in their relationship with God through Christ, where, while the unbelieving just come for themselves, for, for different reasons, to benefit themselves. So this is why elders have to hold fast to the faithful word and be able to refute those who contradict it. We have to be able to show that, the, the elder must be able to show that he's in line with God's word, both in his teaching and in his uh, lifestyle and his way of living, so that the insubordinate might be convinced and converted. Uh, elders must be able to expose <clears throat> and, and silence the empty talk and deception of false teachers with the genuine truths of God's word and a genuine life of faith in the truth, genuine obedience to the truth. So that's why we have to keep a close watch on ourselves and others and take care that we're not deceived by false teachings because it's not, Paul is saying here, it's not about ex- externals, it's about the internal. That's what he's going to get into in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, I think is most likely a, a refutation of these Judaizers and their, their, their false teachings. Because they, that's what they would teach is, you know, what goes into you makes you impure in some way. But Jesus said that nothing that goes into a man makes him unpure. It's actually what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And so Paul makes two profound, very profound statements here in this same sentence. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Again, Paul is just repeating what Jesus himself taught just in a different way. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but rather it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. As Jesus said, he rebuked the Pharisees that he said, you know, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the dish remains filthy. Paul says in Romans 14 that whatever is not from faith is sin. And I, I would say this is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief in the world. Every, everything in the Christian life, in the genuine Christian life, flows from the inside out, from a, a transformed heart and mind through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul would, would say is that it's actually, it's faith, it's your faith that determines the health of your soul. It's, it's your faith, it's who your faith is in and, and the nature of your faith, if you have genuine faith, that determines whether you will worship God or idols. It determines whether you'll be content and generous or covetous and stingy. Right? If you just think about being generous and, or being covetous, you can slap a law on that and you could say well, you have to give at least 10%, but that won't change a heart. So it's the kind of faith that you have and who your faith is in that determines what you love and who you love. And that is what will drive your thoughts, words, and actions for better or for worse. Eyes of faith fixed on Christ will pursue, pursue Him and lay aside everything else that gets in the way of that. To the pure in heart, all things become pure because they have no desire or use for any evil thing or a desire to indulge in even, even good things in a way that's, that's, that's evil or in a way that will keep them from pursuing Christ. And so that's why addressing the heart is so important. Whether you're a pastor or whether you're a parent. Uh, you can address the behavior by, I'll just give it an example, let's say, take entertainment, for example. You could, get, you could address the behavior by saying, telling yourself and your kids that you're only going to watch uh, rated PG movies, 
or rated G movies, or you could do the, the harder but deeper and more difficult work of asking yourself or your kids or someone else why you get pleasure from things you shouldn't get pleasure from. You know, violence, profane language, lust, sensuality, uh, disrespect, rebellion, foolishness. You know, if it entertains you, why does it entertain you? Uh, what, what is it that's in your heart that, fi- that you find sin on display gratifying and enjoyable? That's the harder, the, the, the deeper questions. Uh, and then Paul you know, says that they're, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by, by their works. Right? Um, <clears throat> so, there are uh, two different ways to be a, a religious hypocrite. And I think... Uh, Paul repudiates the first in verse 15 and then the second in verse 16. The first way is to reduce religion to external behavior and say if you, you, know, you do these certain things, check these boxes, practice these rituals, then you're right with God. And then Paul repudiates that by saying that if you don't have faith, then all your works are worthless. Uh, um, Matthew Henry in his commentary on these verses, on verse 15, puts it this way. He says, and he quotes Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination of the Lord. And Proverbs 21, 4, the plowing of the wicked is sin. And he says, not the plowing in, and in itself, but as it is done by him, the carnality of the mind and the heart mars all the labor of his hands. So in other words, no, no unbeliever can do truly good works for truly good reasons with truly good motives. The best they can do is good works for selfish reasons or selfish motives because none of their good works are done for the glory of God because they don't proceed from a heart that's been purified by faith. And so a person might sing the doxology, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? In the congregation, but they'll never burst out with a doxology or a hymn on a beach as they see a beautiful sunset. Because that's just the, it, so, because worship to them is, is external. They do it because of their surroundings, not because of what is in them. Because they, they see God as beautiful. Instead of seeing God as beautiful, they, they don't, so they don't worship God because they see God as beautiful. They worship God because they want to see themselves as respectable. Um, and so the other way to be a religious hypocrite, though, is to say that my profession of faith is all that matters, and that I can believe I have the internal reality of genuine faith, even if there's no objective external evidence for it. And so Paul uh, rebukes that, or, you know, he contradicts that in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You can't have genuine faith if you have no works. James says the same thing, right? Faith without works is dead. Faith that does not produce good works is not genuine faith. And so it's amazing that, you know, even though an unbelieving heart might disguise itself for a time, it inevitably comes out in how people act. And Jesus said it best. He said, every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, and and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so let me just uh, conclude, I know we're running out of time here, let me just conclude with some practical uh, application and 
and exhortation. Well, and actually, before I do that, though, notice what Paul says about these guys. So, so quite stark adjectives, right? Uh, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He's, he's pretty unsparing in his critique of, good guys, of these guys. He doesn't say they're good people who are misguided in a few places, you know, or anything like that. He's, he's, I mean, these are pretty uh, harsh. This is pretty harsh language. In God's sight, people, these false teachers, people who teach false doctrine are detestable. Uh, they're, you know, they're good for nothing until they come to genuine repentance and faith. They're disobedient to God's word, and, um, and as a result, they're unfit and unqualified for any kind of genuine uh, ministry in God's kingdom. And so, so we see that this passage is an explanation of why elders must be well-trained and convicted and convinced of sound doctrine and why they must live it out, because they're going to face this. They're going to face uh, false teachers who are proud and insubordinate, who are full of empty talk, who deceive themselves and, and, and deceive others and seek to deceive others. And so faithful elders must be ready to silence them by correcting them with the truth. Uh, you know, they must be silenced, exposed. They must be called out. They must be refuted because they'll, if, if not, then it's just going to spread and they're going to upset the faith of others. As Paul said in Colossians 2, false teachers will take people captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so I think the application of this sermon for us is be on your guard. Be, be on your guard. Be grounded in the truth. Know the Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Know the Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Watch out for those who would try to deceive you. Guard against it. Speak out against it. Practice and grow in biblical discernment. But even more than that, watch yourself. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. When you read and study your Bible, watch out for those instances where the Holy Spirit tells you to do something or repent of something, and your heart, you know, you guys know, I mean, I know I knew this in my own life, your heart starts to come up with all of these reasons and all of these excuses, all these reasons that that verse doesn't apply to you right now. Be careful that your mind and conscience don't become defiled. That sin is a disease, the cure is genuine faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we believe that determines who we become. We must abide in Christ. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me you can do nothing. And so I just want to conclude with an excerpt from an, another of Paul's letters from Philippians because I think it just, it, it just parallels this portion of Titus perfectly. Uh, Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, and he says, Watch out for the dogs. <laughs> he's speaking of false teachers. Again, like unsparing, right? Detestable, disobedient, uh, unfit for any good work. Watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul lists then his religious credentials. But then he says, But then whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. 
For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because I can do it in my own strength? No. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. So I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own, because I've been born again, because I've been made new by God's Spirit. And I press on in the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, not through external things, but through the working of the Spirit of God in my heart. And then he says, in forgetting what lies behind, all the sins I've committed, they're, they're all under the blood of Christ. They're all forgiven. Forgiven what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let all of those of us who are mature think this way. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You uh, for how it teaches us the way the truth, and the life, which is only through Your Son, through faith in Your Son. Lord, we thank You for the warnings that You give us, and we, we pray that You would help us to hold fast to Him, that we would hold fast to the head of Your church, Jesus Christ, Lord, and that we would not be deceived into any kind of false teaching. And we, and we know that You've given us Your Word, Lord, um, as, as our guide, as a, as a light, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that you would, we would hold fast to your word and to your word alone. And that we would be careful to live our lives by it. We would be, we'd be careful, Lord, to um, discern, to be discerning. And to uh, watch not only out for others, but, but for our own hearts as well, Lord. That we would uh, follow you and not be deceived. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your spirit. And, uh, and, and we can know him who is true because we are in your son, Jesus Christ.